Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to Redeemer Radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. Father Michael Ward is a member of the Faculty of Theology and Religion at the University of Oxford. He is the author or editor of several books, including Heresies and How to Avoid Them, The Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis, and After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. But it was another one of his books that Walter Hooper, the esteemed literary advisor to the estate of C.S. Lewis, lauded as, quote, unsurpassed in showing a comprehensive knowledge of and depth of insight into C.S. Lewis's works. That book is the groundbreaking and persuasive Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. Father Ward brought his world-class expertise on the works of C.S. Lewis to a new volume recently released from Ignatius Press, for which I myself happen to serve as editor. This book is The Chronicles of Transformation, A Spiritual Journey with C.S. Lewis. In the book, we take seriously Narnia as a place where the choices and actions, the desires and dispositions of children— affect their own destinies, and the fate of the world. It is a place where children learn what it means to grow in maturity, to become responsible, to develop character. But it is also a place, Narnia, where adults can always start over in relearning what is all too quickly forgotten for the sake of their own moral and spiritual transformation. For his part, Father Ward authored the chapter on Lewis's Prince Caspian. In his chapter, Father Ward helps us to get acquainted with and be delighted by what it feels like to live inside a chivalric tradition. We first recorded this episode a few years ago when Father Ward visited Notre Dame to give a lecture on Prince Caspian. Our conversation moves broadly across and deeply into the imagination of C.S. Lewis. As for me, I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production on the McGrath Institute for Church Life. I'm glad you're here. Father Michael Ward, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Lenny. Glad to be here. So I'm going to start right away talking about your book, Planet Narnia. You published this in 2008 with Oxford University Press, and right from the start in the book, you make a claim that is absolutely alluring and makes your reader almost absolutely skeptical. <laughs> you write, and I quote, I think I have stumbled upon the secret imaginative key to the Chronicles of Narnia. What is the key? <laughs> yes, I believe I have stumbled upon that very key. And the key is the seven heavens of the medieval cosmos, the seven planets 
that give us the names of the days of the week. Uh, and they are, if we go through the names of the days of the week, the sun for Sunday, the moon for Monday, Mars for Martes, Tuesday, Tutir mm-hmm. in Norse mythology is the same as Mars in Roman mythology, and then Mercury, Jupiter, Venus, and Saturn for the remaining days of the week. So those are the seven heavens, the seven planets, which C.S. Lewis described as spiritual symbols of permanent value, which were mm. especially worthwhile in his own generation. And he writes about those seven spiritual symbols all over his work elsewhere, outside Narnia, in his poetry, in his academic writings, even in his letters, and of course, most explicitly in his Ransom Trilogy, mm. the, the trilogy of interplanetary novels that he wrote during the Second World War. And when you come at Narnia with those seven spiritual symbols in mind, the Chronicles suddenly make a whole lot extra sense. Hmm. But he doesn't quite name that as the key, which is why it has gone undetected all this time. Exactly. how do they function in the stories? Yes, that is why it is the secret imaginative (laughs) key, which people have been looking for Uh but haven't found before. All sorts of different theories have been suggested about what might bind the chronicles together, and different theories have been propounded like the the seven deadly sins and the seven sacraments and Mm -hmm. any seven that people can think of, really. (laughs) But amazingly, the one seven, which, as I say, is all over Lewis's work, the seven heavens, hadn't been considered seriously before I came along in when I was halfway through my doctoral research and stumbled across it. I wasn't actually really looking for it. It just fell into my lap one night Mm. when I was reading a poem that Lewis wrote about the seven heavens. And I got to the lines about Jupiter where Lewis says that Jupiter brings about winter past and Mm. guilt forgiven. That's one of the jovial qualities. And I suddenly thought, winter past and guilt forgiven? That's like a five-word summary of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. (laughs) It really is. So that was what tipped me off. And then I spent the next year rereading everything Lewis had ever written about the planets. And everything I read just confirmed over and over and over again that this really was the key to Narnia. Mm. So you really focused in your book and elsewhere on Lewis's interest in implicit communication. So Mm. one of the reasons it's secret is he doesn't come right out and say, here's what I'm doing in these books. I mean, it's not so crass, right? And in fact, that would sort of undo the whole purpose for writing these in the way that he did. Yes. Tell us about implicit communication and especially how that's functioning in Narnia. Yeah. Well, exactly. And this is what some people say to me. If it it matters so much that we we know this key, why didn't Lewis make it clearer? Mm -hmm. But the whole point is that Lewis was communicating to us in this implicit fashion through what he calls enjoyment consciousness. Hmm. Not contemplative consciousness, but enjoyment consciousness. When you are inside the thing, you're not looking at it from outside, observing it from a neutral, dispassionate spectator's point of view. No, you are embraced by it. You're inside the beam of light, to, to use one of his, of his ways of talking about Meditation this. and the Meditation tool shed, and right? Also, the difference yeah. between looking at a beam of light in a dark tool shed and actually standing in the beam yeah. and looking along. Standing there, right? inside the beam where it informs your whole field of vision, mm. that's a very different kind of experience. And that is also much more like what it means to know God mm. than the other kind of perspective. Because we can't actually look at God. We can't get an, an external spectator's vantage point on God, because God is holding us together in being. You know, we live and move and have our being in God. So 
we literally can't get outside God and treat him as if he were an object to be studied. Mm. You know, like beetles pinned on a card, <laughs> like Eustace Clarence Scrub in The Voyage of the Dawn Dreader. Right. We can't do that to God. We have to recognize that we are, as it were, inside the beam of the divine being uh, in order to have any existence at all. So I think this is one of the reasons why Lewis is writing the Nine Chronicles in this fashion, because by keeping the theme, this planetary scheme, secret, he's, as it were, representing for us imaginatively what it is to have this enjoyment, consciousness, awareness of God himself. He says in, in his book on the Psalms that coming to know God is much more like breathing an atmosphere than it is like learning a subject. Mm. Breathing an atmosphere, that's a very interesting way of putting it because, of course, in the medieval thought, you breathed in, literally, the influences of the planets. They were in the air. Mm. They were affecting you, even if you weren't consciously aware of it. And that's precisely what he's, what he's trying to symbolize vis-a-vis uh, -vis God, that is to say vis-a-vis -vis Aslan, with this planetary symbolism in Narnia. And we, it seems, much of the time, want to know what it is that we're being engaged by. We want to look at it, to mm. dissect it, to mm. analyze it. But you know, as you as you bring this out, it becomes all the more apparent, going back to the Chronicles of Narnia, mm. this seems to be what's going on. The other thing, that the children who enter into Narnia, they're being changed by the atmosphere. Mm. They're being challenged by the atmosphere, mm. and their response to it is very much moving the story. Mm. But we, as the readers, might want to to analyze that too much and not mm. move with them. Is mm. that is that part of the mastery of this implicit communication for him? The the importance of the atmosphere, which isn't a thing to look at, but a thing to be in. Yeah, I mean, we as readers are in the atmosphere, mm. but so are the children in the story. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the Pevensey children breathe in. For instance, in Prince Caspian, which I talked about in the lecture the other night, at Caspian hardens as the air of Narnia works on him and, all, and, and Edmund, all his old battles come back to him and Susan's bowstring has been saved from perishing by some magic in the air. Mm. And as Lewis points out in the discarded image, his book on the medieval and Renaissance worldview, he says that, you know, that the planetary influences don't work upon us directly, but by first modifying the air of Earth's atmosphere. So that if you went to your doctor with an undiagnosed condition and your, your doctor couldn't explain what was wrong with you, he would, say, he would say it's probably the influence which is in the air at the moment. Mm -hmm. And if he was an Italian doctor, he'd say it is the influenza <laughs> that is currently in the air. And that word influenza has entered our medical textbooks. Uh -huh. you know, we, we now use that as a medical term. But it literally refers to a planetary effect. Uh-huh. But even the character that you mentioned earlier, Eustace Scrub, mm. who begins in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader as mm. a sort of thoroughly unlikable character, mm. he's not moving willingly in Narnia. There's no intention there. And even before he comes to his pivotal conversion scene, mm. several chapters in, mm. the trek that he makes to get there, mm. he wouldn't have been capable of at first. The air has, mm. has changed him mm. itself, which seems to bring out this very point, right? The atmosphere is not about what you see, it's not about the intention, it's just working on you. Mm. Yeah, it's a way of describing the, the whole spiritual reality of the Narnian world mm. as it is depicted in each chronicle. And so in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the, the symbol that Lewis is working with is the sun, mm -hmm. a solar symbol, and that helps explain, on the one hand, why Eustace becomes a dragon. He's, you know, he's got the, the, the dragonish lust for gold upon him, and mm. the sun's metal was gold. Mm. But it also helps explain the manner of his deliverance from that greed because the Greek god of light, Apollo, 
was famously a slayer of dragons. Hmm. He was known as Apollo Soroctonus, the dragon slayer, the lizard slayer. So when Aslan comes along and rips off the dragon's skin and turns Eustace back into a boy again, that's not just a convenient metaphor for Christian conversion. It's part and parcel of the solar symbolism out of which the whole Narnia chronicle, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, has mm-hmm. been constructed. Hmm. Very good. You're listening to Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Father Michael Ward of the University of Oxford and author of Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. Now, I can imagine some who have maybe are coming across this imaginative key for the first time are maybe a little bit destabilized because aren't these Christian stories? And now we're talking about the influence of the planets. Mm-hmm. And it seems like maybe categories are getting blurred and you get a little defensive. And even you in your book, you bring this up. You say, despite Lewis's imaginative pleasure in this old cosmology that you're saying he's employing, he recognizes, Lewis does, that it had a serious defect. It was not true. <laughs> <laughs> so, there are not seven planets only, and those planets do not go around the Earth. So why appeal? Why did Lewis appeal to this old cosmology and structure the Narnia stories around it? How does this mm. play in? Aren't these Christian stories? They are most definitely Christian stories. But the interesting thing that is going on here is an example of what Lewis elsewhere calls transferred classicism. Hmm. That's a term that he coined when he was writing a review of the Oxford Book of Christian Verse, where he says that Christian writers, up until as late as the 17th century, John Milton is the example he gives, would reach back into the classical pagan past, Greek and Roman classical mythology, and they would find in those myths uh, certain characters, gods and goddesses and, and themes and images, and they would transfer those things into their own Christian literature. Mm. And so God, the Christian God, Lewis says, will often appear in medieval and Renaissance literature, but disguised, dressed up as Zeus or Jupiter or Apollo or whoever it may be. And everyone is in the secret. He says that paganism is the religion of Christian poetry. Hmm. Paradoxically. Right. But everybody knew that the pagan mythology was just being deployed, you might even say exploited, for Mm -hmm. Christian purposes, or you might, to use a a more positive term, say that it had been baptized, it had been converted and turned to Christian effect. So that's exactly what Lewis is up to in the Narnia Chronicles, where he takes these seven pagan gods and goddesses connected with the seven heavens, the seven planets, and he uses each one in turn as a way of talking about Aslan. Mm. So Aslan becomes the true Mars in Prince Caspian. He becomes the true Jupiter in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and so on seven times over. And you might say that Lewis could have got all that same symbolism from the Bible because, of course, you could have talked about Christ as the light of the world, as Jesus says in John's Gospel, I am the light of the world. There you have solar symbolism, you might say, being deployed very explicitly by Jesus himself. Or, you know, think of the Lord of hosts mighty in battle or become a good soldier of Christ Jesus, put on the the whole armor of God. There the Christian life is, and God himself, is depicted in martial terms, in militaristic terms. And so, you know, when Lewis is talking about the pagan god Mars, he's, as it were, only taking and running uh, with a certain strand of scriptural imagery, mm-hmm. but filtering it through or enriching it with his knowledge of, of classical mythology. Mm-hmm. It seems for, especially us as modern readers, for many modern readers, we're perhaps at a double disadvantage then. One, we're not familiar with this old cosmology, but two, we 
probably more often than not have a view of the world that's drained of this wonder mm. and power. It's mm. just the brute stuff. It just mm. is what it is and mm. nothing else. And so it seems like in what you're tracing that Lewis's task is therefore doubly difficult to bring us into this old view. But the old view is really a view of the world charged with, well, the grandeur of God, mm. as Hopkins would say, or mm. really a place that can be wondered at. Yeah. Is this why he has to take us into Narnia out of the world that we're comfortable in? Yes, and I think this is another reason why he keeps it secret, hmm. that he just throws us in to a jovial world in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He just plunges us into a martial world in Prince Caspian, and so that we begin to intuit these resonances, these spiritual significances. If he told us that this was what he was up to, we would be on our guard. Absolutely. We, we would be armed and forearmed against it, against it having its true spiritual effect. Because, of course, he's trying to, you might say, re-enchant the cosmos. Mm -hmm. The cosmos has been progressively disenchanted in the last few centuries. He writes about this in his academic works. And the way to re-enchant it is not necessarily by full frontal attack on our academic perceptions, though right. that, of course, may be part of it. A much more important and possibly effective way of correcting this disenchantment is to give us an imaginative embrace of an enchanted cosmos, which is, if I'm right, precisely what he's up to when he's, he's using these seven spiritual symbols uh, in each of the Narnia books. But he does, he comes close to making it explicit in one place in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. You remember Eustace says to Ramondu, the, the star character, uh -huh. in our world, a star is just a huge ball of flaming gas. There you have the modern scientific materialist, reductionist point of view right. expressed in just a few words. Right. A star is just a huge ball of flaming gas. Right. It can have right. no spiritual significance, can it? It's just matter and energy. <laughs> and the star replies to Eustace and says, well, even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is, but only what it is made of, hmm. which is a fantastically pithy answer to materialist reductionism. Because, mm -hmm. okay, yeah, you can say all sorts of interesting things about what constitutes a star chemically, physically. But once you've said all that, have you said all there is to be said? Aren't the stars messengers? They're telling the glory of God, according to the Psalms. Mm -hmm. Psalm 19, which Lewis said was the greatest poem in the book of Psalms. The heavens are divine messengers telling us the glory of God. They're not just lumps of rock and gas floating above our heads. Mm. That reminds me, strangely, tangentially, of the conversation of Timon, Simba, and Pumbaa in The Lion King. If you've seen that, they're looking up at the stars, and it's the same kind of conversation, mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like one, I think it's Timon, is stripping it of all wonder, and Simba is holding on to this view of the stars as, as mm. important. But it's a similar conversation that you're bringing up from The yeah. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. On this point, you've, you wrote elsewhere, and I love quoting to people things they've written, and then you have to remember that you wrote it and then talk about it, right? So, but you wrote that C.S. Lewis believed that knowledge itself was fundamentally poetic. Uh, that is to say, shaped by the imagination. And mm -hmm. it strikes me that some of what we're talking about is a, is a difference in how we think about knowledge, that that's, mm. we don't have a very poetic grasp of knowledge, probably in, in our modern world, in our modern educational system, in the mm. way that we value knowledge. What do you think Lewis's poetic vision of knowledge teaches us or shows us about what education is really all about? Yeah, well, but, but what do we mean, first of all, by poetic knowledge? I, I think it's worth reminding us uh, ourselves of of the fundamental place that imagination plays in all knowledge. It's not as if it's only the artistic types who need the imagination. 
you know, the, the novelists and the painters and the musicians and the artists. No, scientists and mathematicians need the imagination just as much because the imagination, according to Lewis's understanding of, of how we know things and believe things, imagination is the organ of meaning. Hmm. And if our organ of meaning is not properly functioning, then we won't have anything to reason about. It's not as if scientists and mathematicians are the rational people because reason actually can't operate without meaning. Reason is what Lewis calls the natural organ of truth. But something has to mean before it can be either true or false. So reason depends upon imagination in Lewis's epistemology. And scientists and mathematicians, therefore, are just as imaginative as artists. It's just they happen to find number and quantity and those sorts of categories meaningful for their, for their given undertakings. They don't find concrete personalities and poetic symbols particularly meaningful uh, in the same way that novelists and poets and musicians would. But both artists and scientists are imaginative. They both are finding meaning in the world, mm -hmm. which their reasons then get to work upon. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, the, the resulting fruit of their labors is, is vastly different. But it comes from the same root. It comes from the same stock. Mm. The importance of beauty and recognizing elegance in the mm. created order, as you're saying, for a, for a scientist, for a mathematician, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. That's usually what grasps them in the early mm. stages of pursuing that path. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to Church Life Today and Redeemer Radio. We're talking with Father Michael Ward of the University of Oxford and author of Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens in the Imagination of C.S. Lewis. Let's turn to a, a little bit of um, something that Lewis wrote on this, a similar point, it seems, on the kind of education we prize and the kind of knowledge that we revere. He takes on the charge in one of his essays, Three Ways of Writing for Children, he takes on the charge that fairy tales take school children away from dealing seriously with the world as kind of a way of escaping and that the real purpose of education is to, to school them in the serious looking at the world. But he wants to say these categories are all mixed up. So he writes in this essay a little passage, he says, as the boy reading the school story desires success and is unhappy because he can't get it. The boy reading the fairy tale desires and is happy in the very fact of desiring, for his mind has not been concentrated on himself as it often is in the more realistic story. Mm. I was caught by this because he's making a claim about how we educate our young people and the place of precisely the imagination of giving free space and of actually eliciting desire. Um, what do you take from this as, a, as somebody who's interested in the imagination and the arts and theology and formation? Mm. What, is he, what is he saying to us about how we educate our young? Mm. I think he's saying that you need to respect the value of story. I mean, remember Eustace Clarence Scrub. Remember, remember how he's depicted in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He's read all the wrong books. All the wrong books. Uh, he doesn't know what a dragon is. Uh-huh. He likes books which are books of information and which show pictures of fat foreign children doing exercises in model <laughs> schools. He likes beetles as long as they're dead and pinned on a card. Uh -huh. He likes this dry, desiccated, reductionistic, unpoetic approach to the world. Now, that's absolutely typical of a certain kind of education. And it's not Lewis who's the first to, to satirize it. Of course, you find it in Dickens too. I mean, mm -hmm. Hard Times by Dickens with, with the school teacher, Mr. Gradgrind, who's wanting, who's drilling the boys in facts, 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 give me the facts. But it's interesting that here we are at Notre Dame and I've just come from a, a lovely hour spent in the company of Alistair McIntyre, the great philosopher. 
And I think it was Alistair McIntyre. If he didn't say this, he, he, probably, he, could, have. he could have and <laughs> should have. Right. But he says somewhere that facts like telescopes and wigs for gentlemen are 17th century inventions. <laughs> <laughs> Until the scientific revolution in the roughly the 17th century, uh-huh. 18th century, we didn't think of facts in this sort of neutral, desiccated, cut and dried fashion. They, they are the fruit of a certain approach to the world, a, a scientific reductionist point of view, which sees the world as, as so much raw material to mm-hmm. be cut up mm-hmm. and observed and measured and quantified for our own particular needs and purposes. It's not a view of the world which sees ourselves and the world as in organic relationship, as in a holistic, healthy relationship. You might even say a spiritual relationship Mm -hmm. in which we, yeah, we can do certain things to the world. We can do certain things to our own nature. And to, to a certain extent, we should insofar as nature has fallen. But we are, we're not external surgeons operating upon this system. No, we are, as it were, poetic speakers of a language. Hmm. And just as a great poet can develop a language from within and give new meanings to certain terms and certain words, so we should respond to the world in, in that kind of organic, holistic, participatory fashion. And there's all the difference in the world between the, the surgical and the organic in that respect. And I think that's very much what is lying behind Lewis's philosophy of education. Train up children to have the organic approach to the world, not the surgical world, hmm. not the surgical approach, the mechanical approach. To train children or lead them into what even St. Augustine at the beginning of the Confessions calls, to claim myself as a due part of your creation, mm. O oh Lord, right? To, that view of the whole and to see oneself mm. within the whole. Absolutely. Love that very much. Well, your lecture as you were with us was on Prince Caspian. And I think you had first pick of all the books and you chose that one, if I remember correctly. So <laughs> actually, well, I'm part not sure. of it had to do with dates. It baby. was more to do with dates. That was dates, and, okay. And I, I'm not sure that that's quite right. But anyway, I can't <laughs> remember how we decided upon this. But if, if I had had my way, yes. I would have gone for The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Oh, okay. that's my favorite. Oh, okay. I was happy, very happy to talk about Prince Caspian, uh, not least because I think it's often misunderstood. And in some respects, it's the least good of the seven books. Hmm. Um, So it needs special handling. So I'm very happy to have talked about Prince Caspian. um, So the appeal, part of the appeal is that it needs a little bit of help. Yeah, it needs a little bit of rehabilitation, to Uh to use one of Lewis's favorite critical terms. And how do you like to rehabilitate it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you'll have to listen to my my lecture, which is online somewhere. Mm -hmm. It is. It's on our McGrath Institute for Church Life website, which you can find videos of all the lectures as they're completed. We post them up there and they're linked to our YouTube page. Let me just ask you in closing how you've spent quite a lot of time reading C.S. Lewis in a number of different ways. How were you first encountered by C.S. Lewis and what grabbed you in the first place? My first memories of C.S. Lewis when I was, I don't know, a boy of four or five, my two brothers and I would jump into our parents' bed on a Sunday morning and my mum would read us a chapter of the latest Narnia book before we had breakfast and went off to church. Hmm. So that was my first exposure to to C.S. Lewis. And as soon as I was able to read the books for myself, I did so. Mm -hmm. 
and then got into his other fiction like The Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce and then into his apologetics like Mere Christianity and The Problem of Pain. And then I went to Oxford to do an English degree and so I began studying Lewis's academic writings mm -hmm. on medieval and Renaissance literature. And so Lewis has accompanied me really throughout my whole life. And when I came to do my PhD, it was obvious that I should do my research on, on Lewis because I was already so familiar with his works. As I was halfway through my doctoral research, I stumbled across this secret imaginative key to Narnia and it's dominated my life ever since. It really has. It was yet another turn. Yeah. So you were grasped by the atmosphere of Lewis early and then taken all this way. Yeah. yeah. And of course, my four or five-year-old approach to Narnia it was, was very simple. I just mm. enjoyed the story and the characters. Mm. I also was intrigued by the fact that there was this second level to the stories because my parents told me enough about Narnia to clue me into the fact that Aslan was a bit like Jesus mm -hmm. and the White Witch was a bit like the devil. <laughs> uh, and that intrigued me because most books that I was familiar with at that stage didn't have a second level of meaning. No, hippopotamuses or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but I, it never occurred to me that I would eventually stumble across a third level of meaning. Hmm. You know, this planetary substrate, mm -hmm. this imaginative DNA to the stories, which is Lewis's controlling imaginative blueprint. And it was quite the most exciting thing that has ever happened to me while holding a book in my hands when I stumbled across this key. And these books, which I had been reading for about 30 years by that point, suddenly took on this whole other dimension of complexity and beauty and profundity. I was almost literally stunned. I felt concussed by this discovery. I walked around Cambridge in a daze for about two weeks. And it just goes to show that you can laugh too soon. You shouldn't dismiss these books as, oh, just fit for children. No, no, no. These are classic works of, of English literature. They have become classics because they are works of genius. Not just because, you know, parents need books to read to the children at bedtime. Which we do. Which we do. But it's good to have masterpieces. It, it's to, good to have yeah. masterpieces, which, right. the, which appeals to the parent as well as to the child. Oh, that's the and only thing do. we need as parents. It's yeah. something that we don't mind reading, that in fact we learn to love to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Indeed. Well, Father Michael Ward, where can people find you or more about Planet Narnia if they're interested in following up? Planet Narnia has its own dedicated website, okay. planetnarnia.com, where you can find all about the book and indeed about the BBC documentary that was made about the book. That was broadcast uh, under the title The Narnia Code, mm. and that's available on DVD. So planetnarnia.com for the book and the DVD. And then if you want to know about me and my speaking engagements and things like that, I've got my own website, michaelward.net. Excellent. So planetnarnia.com, michaelward.net. So grateful to you for not only the lecture you've given, but uh, spending time with us and sharing this time uh, on the air with us today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com. Ave Maria Press has been publishing Catholic books and resources for more than 150 years, and they are located right on the north side of the Notre Dame campus. Visit AveMariaPress.com for a wide selection of spirituality books, classic Catholic literature, and even books for families. You can also find podcasts and free downloadable Catholic content. Visit AveMariaPress.com and receive 25% off your order with code REDEEMER. Ave Maria Press, helping people to know, love, and serve God.